KYW Original Podcasts. The beer and booze bros are in the house. Hello. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hello. John McDevitt, <laughs> Paul Kurtz somehow convinced management <laughs> to let them cover the beer beat. <laughs> yeah, we did. Didn't we? A lot of research, Carol. Oh, I know there's a lot of research, boys. <laughs> I also need to mention you guys are hosts of the KYW podcast, The Beer and Booze Bros. And this is a special episode of KYW In-Depth with the Boys, sponsored by Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey. Every day we make it, we'll make it the best we can. Live freely, drink responsibly. You guys have been busy this past week, have you not? Doing real work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's been 100 years since Prohibition started. And what we wanted to do was uh, uncork, if you will, some incredible stories yeah. uh, that a lot of people didn't know. And we focused, uh, we focused exclusively on Philadelphia. What was Prohibition like in Philly? And we found all kinds of uh, amazing stories. And yet I should have known... You know, Philly has a reputation. We should have known that they were going to be one of the the cities to say, no, no, we are not doing this. <laughs> we will find a way around it. Whatever we have to do, we're going to be the, well, they became, they were called the wettest, dry city in America, I believe. Organized crime was a big part of that. They were running the show. I found out who uh, Max Boo Hoff was. Boo-boo. Did you hear of Boo Boo Hoff? Boo Boo Hoff. That's an awesome name. <laughs> he was the king bootlegger, known as the king of, of, of bootleggers. And then there was the uh, Baron of Beer. Mickey Duffy. Back in the day, people were just turning their you know the you know, blind eye to, 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 to folks. There were speakeasies, 16,000 speakeasies estimated in Philadelphia during Prohibition. That's huge. It was in back rooms, went to Kyber Pass in Old City. Mm. That was a a speakeasy. In the front, they had a cleaning service, very small. And then they had a false wall and a private entrance to the bar. The the bar that you see today was what flappers were dancing on back in the day. Get out. It's it's almost like Prohibition never arrived in Philadelphia. The more we look into this, the more people just – they were going to get what they were going to get. Look, look, the people wanted their, their, their alcohol. The, uh, the cops wanted their bribes, and the politicians wanted their graft. They were all in on it. I mean, it you seemed know, like a good idea at the time, right? I right. mean, there, there was a lot of bad things going on with alcohol pre-prohibition, and the, but it was just a disaster. hundred years later— It's still—prohibition is still with us in many ways. We're finding that some of our, like, blue laws, state stores, and, and even today, where beer is finally getting into markets. Right. It took that long. We're still dealing with it. Yeah. So we've got bootleggers, bathtub gin, and the story of how basically an entire city resisted the ban on alcohol. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. And this week, we're turning the podcast over to John McDevitt and Paul Kurtz. It's a finely tuned machine, guys. Don't break it. Okay. Too late. When you, okay. We're standing outside Boo Boo Hoff's old house. Yeah, and it's a historic house built in 1895. Architect Wilson, is it Erie? Yeah. Erie Jr. And we have the privilege, we just have been upon this gentleman. You own this place. Yeah. 
Your name, sir? Henry Nicholas. I'm the president. I knew you were Henry. I thought you were Henry Nicholas. Yeah. This is Paul Kurtz with KYW. He's the head of 1199 Hello, sir. Hi. I'm sure we covered your strikes. Yes. 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 This is Holly. So we had to pick somewhere to start. One of the most interesting characters, if you will, was Max Bubu Hoff. He was known as the king of bootlegging. He had the Sylvania Hotel, he had offices, he had a cigar shop, and these were all basically fronts for the laundering, for the operation, bootlegging operation. Philly was a big uh, chemical town, and there was a lot of alcohol for chemical purposes. He kind of uh, owned the market for, for alcohol, industrial alcohol, and he was able to convert it to drinkable alcohol. So, I mean, he's just making liquor and all kinds of, uh, you know, alcoholic beverages. He was laundering money. He yep. had the racket. He was he was ga- gambling. He was running these speakeasies. Mm-hmm. And one of the speakeasies, it was, I think this is why we started there, was because it was very well documented, the 21 yeah. Club at 13th and Locust. And we were out there taking pictures. and It's now a, a union headquarters. Uh, and the uh, the head of the union saw us out there and... Call us in. How long ago was it that you bought this building? About uh, 40 years ago. Wow. What? Where do you think we've never been inside? Where do you think? Can we, can we just take a quick look? We're heading downstairs to the basement, John. That's where they have the bodies, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of cool to like go into the basement and even see those uh, staircases and lead glass windows. Yeah. You could almost... Put yourself there in the in the 1920s, and this and this kind of looks like a castle. And I, you know, yeah, you got kind of weird. You were like, uh, "What's the password?" Hey, Lefty. <laughs> Knocked on the door. What's the password? Swordfish, beating me out. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we just corrupted them for a minute or two. It's, a, it's now office space. The bones are intact. Yeah. You, People everywhere, a dance class in this room, a secretary over here, and people wondering, what the heck are we doing? <laughs> Who are these people? Uh, we're with we're Boo Boo. We're, we're with Boo Boo. <laughs> look at these steps. Henry, what are these steps? These looks. Yeah, I think Boo Boo had escape routes just in case. He probably had secret passageways. Yeah. Any tunnels under here? Not, not necessarily. That's... Big basement down there where you can go down and crawl out the window if you need to. Is that? Do you think that's what they could have done? Yeah. So down in the basement, we're not in the basement. No, there's there, another. There's a lower level. Uh, Who was a boxing promoter too? Like Started out as a boxing promoter and boxer, uh, boxer promoter. Yeah, yeah. Gangster. Yeah. You know. Prohibition hit. He said, "I got a new operation." And, you know, everything. give him credit. He was smart. He could do everything. He did, and he made a fortune. Yeah, so he was doing all that. He basically he had the uh, the bootlegging side. The, the, the beer guy, the big beer guy, you know, Boo Boo's equal on the beer side was a guy named Mickey Duffy, the Baron of Beer, the Baron of Beer. Yeah, they, he also was called Mister Big, which sounds very cliche, but apparently that was that was his nickname too. Yeah, I guess he had to have a nickname back in those. That days. wasn't his real name either. He was right. of Polish descent and changed it to fit in with the Irish gang. Yeah, I saw a photo of him, his uh, mugshot, and it had the police record. And you see all these aliases. He was known as Michael Duffy and – he had like six or seven aliases. Yeah. So the, yeah. Duffy 
met his untimely demise in his Atlantic City Hotel suite in 1931, and his mystery remains unsolved. He was, uh, he was murdered. And there were other attempts on his life before that, and they, they just never figured it out. So let's go back to continue with Boo Boo. I want to know where he got his nickname. I know. Boo Boo. Boo Boo. That's, 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 that's way before Boo Boo Bear. That's the Yogi case. Bear. Yeah. That's way before right. Yogi Bear. It right. Boo Boo Hoff. Boo Boo. I also heard he visited Al Capone when, when Al Capone was uh, at Eastern? In, at Eastern State Penitentiary. What was that like? Uh, I don't know. It wasn't there. I mean, they. <laughs> <laughs> not like that. I mean. The mobsters were celebrities of the time, and particularly Al Capone, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Al Capone had a, a luxury suite, if you will, over at Eastern State Penitentiary. He was in what was known as Ritz Row, so it was a set of cells set aside that was a little more um, posh. Eastern State Penitentiary, it's in Fairmount. I've been going there for years, doing all sorts of stories there. And one person I met, Andy Anderson, uh She's a historian, and she's also an author. I am the researcher at Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site here in Philadelphia. So I research crime and the people who lived in and worked inside of the penitentiary over the course of its 142-year history. And I also wrote a book about organized crime during the Prohibition era in Philadelphia. In the prison itself, do you have any artifacts or anything mm-hmm. that is associated with this time period? Al Capone's cell is kind of the big one. He had really fine furniture and decorative rugs and paintings. If we look at the records, we see that he had a private visitation from Max Bubuhoff and other boxing promoters in Philadelphia. So he had um, lush surroundings and he had some privilege, probably because he was famous at that point um, and he did have money. And so when Bubu Hoff went to visit him, they were in separate rooms and private rooms, like an office, treated very, very differently than the regular prisoners. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if you were caught up in a raid, you know, you got, I guess you could call it maybe the equivalent of a parking ticket. But if you committed a violent crime, you were thrown in Eastern State Penitentiary and some of the locals uh, served some time there. Yeah, like. Like uh, Mickey Duffy, yeah, the Baron of Beer. He was in there not for making beer and selling it and transporting it. He was in there because he assaulted someone with the intent to kill was the charge. There's actually a display there at Eastern State Penitentiary showing that he, uh, you know, his little, his story. So there's an exhibit here with Mickey Duffy's face on it. You lift up the uh, door here and uh, it says dominated the bootleg trade. In Prohibition era Philadelphia, he spent three years at Eastern State in the early 1920s for assault and battery with the intent to kill. He was gunned down in the Atlantic City, New Jersey Hotel Suite in 1931. His murder was never solved. Mickey Duffy. Yeah, 1931. So he never saw the end of Prohibition. He never saw the dream revealed. Yeah. But there's a, another aspect uh, of Eastern State. Life behind bars there was very similar to life on the outside. There was a bootlegging ring called the Four Horsemen that emerged at Eastern State. So what was happening inside the walls was kind of mirroring what was happening outside of the walls. 
So um, there were. You buried the lead here. I know. (laughs) They were making hooch inside the prison. Yeah, yes, they were. Yeah, just edit this out, put it at the top of the interview. So the Four Horsemen was a gang of four prisoners that had gotten special privileges by the warden. They were appointed to represent the whole prisoner population to bring grievances and to um to to be able to represent the population of prisoners at the time they um gained a lot of power and control they set up an office they kicked out uh, one of the prison officials out of his office and <laughs> locked the door from the inside so the officials couldn't get into this particular office and they kind of ran their headquarters out of this office in the prison and they trafficked in illegal booze and narcotics. They even had a prostitution ring set up where um, younger uh, male prisoners were prostituted out to older male prisoners. So it was a whole confluence of illicit activity that was taking place at the prison. And it's a little bit unknown if the warden knew what was going on. That or- was my next question. If, if the kickbacks were getting, you know, politicians and police were getting kickbacks, you know, uh, in, in outside the walls, like, you know, right. inside the walls. Well, there was definitely illegal booze coming into the prison in addition to all of the homemade stills that uh, these prisoner moonshiners were creating in what their cells. Make? How did they, what did they, what product did they make from they that? Would, or how did they make it? Yeah, they would take fruit and and yeast from the prison kitchen, and they would set up a little bucket or something in their cell and create this illegal hooch that they would then distribute and sell to other prisoners. The narcotics that were coming into the prison, I think there were a couple staff members who were caught bringing drugs into the prison, but also I think they were coming in via visitors, you know, family and friends being able to have physical contact and pass drugs to the prisoners, and then the prisoners would then sell the drugs among uh, the, the population there. And there was also another major 1923 grand jury report that that investigated the prison that found all of this corruption and illicit activity. And the warden, Robert McKenty, was forced out of office because of the embarrassment and the ineptitude that um, he had shown in running the prison. I'm just recording the ambient sound. I'm just recording the sounds. Okay. <laughs> That's a good sound. My perception is Philly was ready to revolt from the moment prohibition was passed. And it was a free-for-all for for, for all I can make of it. I mean, prohibition started because someone, group of people, said, you're immoral and you need to change. Yeah. It's this massive federal apparatus that we see go into effect in the 1920s. And um, just many mainstream Americans just disregarded this law. There was widespread lawlessness, in particular in Philadelphia and across the country. So I think that um, the federal government's efforts to legislate morality or leisure activity, like a fun activity, and this widespread disregard for the law is kind of interesting to us that this law made kind of a nation of lawbreakers out of it. So Philadelphia was really not going to have anything of it. And they went and they got their alcohol and they had their crime. And by 1924, it got so bad that the city had to do something about it. So they went to the president. Do you know who the president was at the time, John? This is a trivia question. Hmm. I cheated. I read Hoover? it. Roosevelt. Roosevelt? Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge. That was my next guess. Yes. And so he sent Smedley Butler. Smedley. 
General, get up to Philadelphia and clean that city up. Highly decorated. Decorated war hero. Nicknamed the Fighting Quaker. Westchester guy. Born in Westchester, went to Haverford uh, School. Decorated Marine, and he was brought in by the federal government. The mayor of Philadelphia pleaded with the president of the United States, please, please bring us Smedley Butler. We need law enforcement in Philadelphia around prohibition. He did something. As an example, he actually did something. In 1923, there were about 220 raids on speakeasies. His first year, there were more than 2,500. And he fired corrupt cops. He created his own unit. I think it was called Unit 1. It was an elite unit. And he was he was to Philadelphia what Elliot Ness was to Chicago for two years. So Smedley Butler was appointed director of public safety, which is basically like the chief of police. And he established a elite unit called uh, unit number one that was a vice squad and they were tasked with going into uh, any place where illicit booze were sold so fancy hotels along broad street like the ritz carlton um corner speakeasies basement speakeasies and um wasn't it called the pounce policy or something pounce something yeah he had a he had a pounce policy where he would kind of surprise the speakeasy customers and um do a quick rate of of a club just by looking at the vice records, this major shift in prohibition enforcement when he comes into office. In fact, there are photographs that we saw. Uh, Annie show, showed us uh, some photographs of General Butler on top of a barrel with an axe. Yeah, he was hands-on. Like, like it, it looked like he was with them on all the raids. Or just for the record, when I saw that photo uh, and on that beer going out, I wept. It was tragic. Who do we hear? Someone was saying that when this was being done, they saw all of this like a flood, like a river, you know, when they would bust up these operations, that they would get down on their hands and knees and lap it up from the yes. sewer or from the street. I think I might have, too. How about you? No, if you're no, back no, I'm too much. No. no? Okay. I would have to boil it, I guess. <laughs> Surprise, surprise, he was basically kicked out of office after about 24 months. He got booted out of town. Because one of the raids that he conducted, the mayor and the elite of society were in the highfalutin hotels. Their favorite spots, the Bellevue, Stratford, Ritz-Carlton, that's where the elite went. Well, And drank. Yeah. Butler shut them down. And that was it. You're done. Pack your bags. The police and the, and the politicians were in on it. Exactly, yeah. Police were protecting the local saloons and getting kickbacks from the local saloons. Um, politicians and power brokers kicked money into local ward politicians, campaigns, and the ward politicians used the saloon as their offices. Basically a cycle of corruption happening and Philadelphians just wanting to drink and willing, willing to abide by widespread lawlessness. This episode of KYW In-Depth is sponsored by Jack Daniels, the oldest, realest, loudest, quietest, friendliest, lonesomest, proudest, mellowest, least likely to give up on good tradition, most likely to make it how we make it, whiskiest whiskey from Lynchburg, Tennessee. Jack Daniels, celebrate the independent spirit to those who do things their own way, to those who take pride in their craft, because that is how they make their whiskey Every single day. Live freely, drink responsibly. When our, when our radio station was located in Old City, uh, one of our favorite watering holes for John and, and me was uh, Kyber Pass. And Kyber comes into play here. 
Uh, we didn't know the rich history of Prohibition and Kyber, but uh, it was a speakeasy during Prohibition. Jenny Hobbs, who represents Kyber, invited us over one day, and she gave us a little tour, and she you know, really painted a nice picture of what that <clears throat> speakeasy must have looked like. The, the story goes is that um, it was turned into a cleaner's like a cleaning service. So they put a sign out front, covered up the bar sign. I think they probably threw a, a curtain in the window and built a wall with a, with a side door. And I mean, you walked in and, and how it goes is that there was just a register in that front room. The bar itself stayed put and nothing really changed very much. When you come in the building, I mean, you, you see out front our facade is the original facade of the building and there's a staircase up and you can't see it from where we are now, but there's uh, several different ways to kind of move through this building and um, I think if it were to have been raided there's enough rooms in this building where people could either go hide out or, or go sneak out the back door yeah. it's one of several ways so the bar it was made for the World's Fair in 1876 so um, really big significance there it was made by German woodworkers and that's the original that's the original bar so they didn't make that come down or anything yeah, during prohibition so I think you know there was some sort of leniency there that uh, was to some the capacity like yeah that, and thank God know, it didn't because yeah. it's such a beautiful bar it's got so much detail and for anybody listening you have to come in and see it for yourself it's really beautiful yeah the bar, beautiful the bar itself it's German artisans oh yeah hand carving it, on it oh my gosh yeah it's still there today. Mm-hmm. Same bar. It's the same bar. Yeah, I remember being in there with you, having a having a beer or two, and we would comment on how glorious it was. Yeah, yeah. it just looked old. It did, <laughs> in a good way. Not old like I look. Right. I won't say you. Just me. <laughs> yeah. From there, we went to McGillan's. And McGillan's is known as the longest, continuous, operating <laughs> tavern. Let's try that again. McGillan's. Uh, so from Kyber, we went over to McGillan's. Everybody knows McGillan's in Philadelphia. And we, we spoke to the owner, Chris Mullins. There were three private rooms on the second floor. And I would say it was probably very probable that people either bought in their own alcohol or had runners who would buy the alcohol and bring it in and they would serve it in teacups. So if anybody came in, they would see the, the, the genteel folks drinking tea or coffee. But that, that coffee may have been spiked. I'm pretty sure it probably was. Tea, um, coffee, and air quotes yeah. I'm talking And the other thing is, at that time, this was a theater district. There was a Garrick Theaters around the corner. And a lot, that's when a lot of the famous celebrities would come in here uh, Will Rogers, the Marx Brothers, uh, Ethel Barrymore, John Barrymore would come in through the back door, and then uh, ostensibly they'd be shown the second floor where they could have their own private room and, and have uh, some of that tea. Yes, maybe. Yes, and the rumor always was that they they would come in even during intermission, and they always said that the second act was always better than the first, <laughs> and it was probably because the Gillens had something to do with it. They were liquored up. They were yeah. up <laughs> on, on stage. So we're hearing stories. Oh, well, that could have been a speakeasy or, oh, I had a relative that was a bootlegger. Oh, well, because it was secret, there's not a whole wealth of information out there. They're out there. But this was 100 years ago. So we had to go to the oldest people we could find. 
I went to Paul. No. Um, <laughs> we went to a senior center, two of them, in South Philadelphia. Okay. All right. So, Anthony, what were the stories that you heard? I mean, obviously, you're not, you know, you, you're not 100 years you know, old. The stories, it was reality. You know, the thing was, uh, my grandfather was a bootlegger. And my mom was aware of that. And, uh, you know, and she told me that he was a bootlegger. She also made me aware that she knew, she knew how to make the liquor. So what was it? What were you? What was? What, was it whiskey? What was it? It was, it was liquor, but it was illegal. And he was a, he was a bootlegger, and he had a business in Center City, uh, a boot black and a uh, hat cleaning place. But he sold. So was it like hidden as a different type of business? Well, they used to wear hats all the time, and they would black them. So he would he had he had somebody getting paid to do that. And if you needed your shoe shine, they did, they did that. And if you needed the liquor, he sold you a bottle of uh, bootleg. Where, where did he hide the liquor on the job? Well, he the place he had was in the basement, of course, from the Forest Theater. Mm. Uh, they were making he was making a lot of money. You said he was making a lot of money. Like, how did that show? Like fancy cars or things like that? No, well, you know, he uh, raised uh, raised a family. Uh, two of my uncles went to college. Back then, that was something. Yeah, uh, they went to college. I mean, he put my grandfather put him through college. You know, hmm. so prohibition was a good thing for your family. Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess it was. Yeah, but uh, I was curious about it, and my, when I, when my mom showed me the alcohol and what she was doing, she made me aware of what of what he was doing. But did she teach you? Oh, I didn't. I, I, I'm not. I don't drink. Oh, you know. We found that there was uh, people were still looking over their shoulder. Some people were still looking over their shoulder, zipping up like it's code. We 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 don't talk here until they realized what we were after and that we were lighthearted and that we were wanted to learn about history that only they can tell us because it's not written anywhere. And they would tell us they opened up after a while. We, we got some hugs after a while. We spoke to a, a, a woman named uh, Rita Monzo. She's 92 years old. She had a walker, and um, she told us about the little wine operation her family had in the basement of their South Philadelphia home. So we got she can about, okay, tell you about the vino. Alone. Yeah, the vino. This is <laughs> that. <laughs> so, do you remember stories of, of, of prohibition? I think, but I remember that. But we made the wine. Yeah, she and her siblings worked the press, so they kind of they were making wine with their family. And who was in charge of that? Was it a, my father? <laughs> and was it something, a recipe, or did he just know how to do it, or how do you think he? Learned? I think he just knew how to make it. It was in his blood. Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> um, but you could make it, you just couldn't had, sell it and things like he, that. No, we didn't sell it. Wait, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink. Just right. sold it to certain people. <laughs> she's telling us a story, and she's a really sweet lady, old lady, 92 years old. And um, she stopped, and then she looked up at her son, who was standing there almost for approval. Like, can I tell him the next part? And he gave this nod, like he knew what and, and, and she was going to say without her even saying. She gave this little, little grin. He made good wine. Would people, uh, neighbors, knock on the door asking for it? Yeah, they would also buy it. 
it must have been darn good wine. <laughs> it was good wine. How, how much are you charging for that? Can we get some? Like, right, right. Uh, how much did you charge? How much did he charge? Not much. No, I'm just kidding. No, did, did you cork the wine too, or was it? Uh, how did how did you seal it? They were in barrels. So did you label it anything, or like was it a special label, or you, did you name it anything? Was it like? Like did you I don't it? think we ever Maybe. labeled it or named it. Good afternoon. I was just going to ask you. The sing along will be beginning in we'll the front part of the auditorium in a few minutes if anybody would like to sing along. So come along and sing along. Thank you. <laughs> Let's have some wine and then we'll sing. No I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, you don't want to hear me sing, that's for sure. Many, many, if not most Italians living in South Philly had a winemaking setup that they never, they never, uh, disbanded when Prohibition hit. They and they just, really never questioned it because wine was always a part of their culture, their celebrations. And now someone has to, someone's coming in, the government's coming in and say, you can't do it. Well, Prohibition, you could consume it. You just couldn't sell it right, or transport it. Or make it. Commercially. Yeah. Nobody was checking your bathtub or, your, no. or, or if Rita was making wine in the basement. And speaking of bathtub, we did find someone who uh, – whose father had a still one I think was in the basement and one was in South Jersey. Now this guy, Anthony, his father was a bootlegger in the fifties. Kind of a, there was a a niche market for grain alcohol and he found places that needed grain alcohol and, and he produced it. Yeah. You see this little scar on the, my nose over here. Yeah. I was like five years old. Me and my brother's playing around. My father's busy emptying the tub, I mean, filling the tub with alcohol, emptying the, the five-gallon containers of aluminum to cans. So I tripped, I fell, and I hit my nose on the rim of the can. And I still have the scar today. And that's uh, 65 years ago. What were the cans used for? He would deliver the alcohol in them. How did the operation work? He built it still out of copper down his basement, and it, and after he made the alcohol, he would go get a good, he had a glass gauge with a cork in it. It was a long tube made out of glass with a cork on the bottom, and he would put that in the alcohol, and that would gauge the, the proof of the alcohol, how much proof it was. And where was this alcohol coming from? Was it wood alcohol? What was it? It, it was grain alcohol, corn you can make alcohol out of anything. You can make alcohol out of fruit, out of anything that will, that will ferment. And the good old bathtub gin that is like kind of like associated with prohibition. Well, that was during more or less prohibition. That was when people made cheap alcohol that was bad for you. When you built a still, yeah. we used to build them in Jersey mostly because it was all Jersey at the time. There wasn't a lot of populated, populated areas, mostly yeah. farmland. So the smell from the alcohol is very bad. And that's how a lot of people could detect where the still, that you have a still. We talk about Sometimes the legacy of prohibition, you know, it, it's still there. I'll, I'll bet people are still making alcohol. The rumors are true. There is a sing-along. Oh, we better go. <laughs> there is a sing in the front of the auditorium. Better run. <laughs> Most people Come along and sing-along. Enjoy <laughs> You know, and also, like, with all this illegal activity going on in this bathtub gin, people were getting sick 
getting like they were becoming blind and dying because uh, there was no I mean, this was wood. What was it? There was wood alcohol being made out there, you know, and uh, sometimes the industrial alcohol wasn't processed properly and uh, you got a bad batch and you got problems. So Annie Anderson tells us that because this area was known for chemicals, I mean, there was a lot of manufacturing of perfumes and other beauty products, products. using chemicals, mm-hmm. and that these operations would hire chemists to come in and actually take it from industrial strength to consumption – to be able to consume it, to drink it. Yeah, the um, the numbers are pretty stark. There were hundreds of people who died, possibly thousands of people who died in Philadelphia during Prohibition by imbibing improperly distilled industrial alcohol. And that was a risk that you had to take if you went into your local speakeasy and you didn't know where the alcohol you were drinking was coming from. Um, one Philadelphia coroner, I think, said that there were about 10 deaths that came to his attention over the span of a few days um, during Prohibition. So it was a risk that you had to take, but many people did take that risk and and imbibed this illegal liquor that um, whose provenance was a little bit sketchy and was was created by home distillers. The, the people were dying. I mean, if I thought about it, it's just something I never thought about, you know, that there were no regulations. People were making bathtub gin and with all sorts of uh, ingredients that uh, could kill you. Poison. And that was something that I kind of didn't ever really think about. The end of Prohibition in 1933, um, the activity didn't really stop. Uh, There was still bootlegging going on. People were trying to get adjusted. I mean, there was always drinking going on. But now, and they made a lot of money yeah, selling this hooch, black market hooch. And what does, what do you do? Brewing took a huge hit. It was, the industry was decimated during Prohibition. So we spoke with Rich Wagner. He's a beer historian and an author. And I've been studying Pennsylvania brewing history since 1980. Rich Wagner told us there were 40 breweries in Philadelphia before Prohibition. Okay, so Prohibition hits. What was going on? A lot of people said, well, I don't want any parts of this. Uh, I'm not going to have my name splashed around in the papers with being illegal and immoral and all this stuff. They'll rent the plant to somebody else. They'll sell the plant, just get out of business entirely, move to Florida or whatever, you know. Uh, A lot of people said, okay, what can we do? Well, we can make near beer, 0.5% alcohol. And so um, that would be the the easiest thing to uh, uh, adapt to, only there wasn't much of a demand for it because regardless of its name, whoever coined the term near beer was a poor judge of distance. (laughs) And uh, you could get out of that altogether. You could just make soda. So post-Prohibition, Prohibition gets repealed and Philadelphia was never the same until – what, the 1980s? What, what, well, what was the landscape? So we said there were about 40 breweries before Prohibition, and about 20 tried to come back. And many of these uh, will last a year. Many of these, they get the license, but they never get the money they need to do whatever they have to do. Uh, there was a lot of people trying to get back in the business. So 
you know. Well, it was from 1933 to 1987. That's what it was. It was like the dominoes. There, there's one more. There's one more. Yeah. And then uh, 1960, Gretz went out of business. 1965, Esslinger goes out of business. 1981, Ortliebs go business. Finally, 1987, last gasp, Schmitz. And for the first time since 1685, there's not a brewery in Philadelphia. Wow. So something like that that the beer historian Rich Wagner told us was like pretty hard to picture because, I mean, you look now, there's microbreweries, there's beer, you know, the craft beer scene is huge. But we went through a dry period after Prohibition, and that was astounding to me, like that, why didn't anybody think of this sooner? And it could be because the hoops that you had to jump through to get this moving again, you know, the laws, regulations, and, and things of that nature. And people, I guess, envisioning what it used to be. Because if you look back, oh, it didn't work. Prohibition came in and, you know, all of these breweries were in, around and they all closed. Well, is it a is the investment worth it? Yeah. And sure enough, we look at where we are today and – you know, it's amazing. And on a side it, note, you can consider Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, the patron saint of the craft beer craze. He signed a law in 1978 uh, allowing Americans to make their own beer. They could, you could home brew. And from that home brewing hobby came the craft beer industry. All these home brewers started opening breweries. Without that law, we don't have a craft beer industry. And it's probably still, we're all still drinking Budweiser and Miller Lite. So, fathom this. It hardly takes a year. 1987, and a year later. David Mink opens the Samuel Adams Brew Pub at 1500 block of Sansom Street. And I liken it to the roots of that tree that got cut down. Those roots are still alive and the little spring buds come up. And now we have this proliferation of new kinds of breweries and a very active uh, brewing center. Uh, of course, not on the scale that it was as terms of the volume of beer produced, yeah. but in terms of the interest and in terms of what we have going on here, it's just phenomenal. And I never could have seen this coming. Prohibition's still with us. Obviously not the way it was in, in the 20s and early 30s, but it, it's still with us in the laws that we have to abide um, you have closing hours, opening hours. Uh, some remnants of the Sunday blue laws remain. Yeah, so that was not too long ago where you couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. I mean, we're now just seeing, you know, being able to buy beer in supermarkets. We're now just seeing changes, dramatic changes. So when Prohibition ended, uh, that was the 21st Amendment, 1933. Sarah Winsky, she's the senior exhibition manager over at the National Constitution Center. Um, basically, prohibition is not going well. Enforcement's not going well. No one's following the law. Organized crime is, is exploded. Um, and then we get the Great Depression. And suddenly Congress has to go, okay, why? Uh, we, we need revenue stream. We don't have capital gains. Taxes have gone in the toilet. Personal income tax, the income tax amendment we had passed to help with revenues in the toilet. So what do we do? We need to bring back the alcohol excess tax when we need to say alcohol is legal again to actually tax it. She uh, broke down the Constitution for us. 
and she told us that there was a second element to the amendment, a second section, and basically it left it up to the states, the requirements, the rules up to the state. Repeal happens really quickly, but there's two sections to the 21st Amendment. The first basically just says the 18th Amendment is repealed, and the second says that the states are now responsible for enforcing this. So that's what gives states the power to, you know, with the federal government, we're out. Section 2 says states are then once again responsible for enforcing any alcohol laws. So that's how you get the patchwork of laws we have across the country. Hmm. Wow, that's great. Yeah. I hope that, that summarized it kind that was of well. <laughs> so that's why we have all these this patchwork of rules laws in different states and Pennsylvania uh, because of the conservative Governor at the time in the in the early 30s um, kind of erred on the side of caution and that's why we had blue laws and uh, restricted operations and and even to this day, state stores, the control of liquor by the state. That's yeah. where we get our liquor. Yeah, the amazing thing is when those laws were passed back in the 30s, they didn't change too much over the decades, at least in Pennsylvania. Uh even now, uh, we, we're even seeing distilleries pop up, uh, craft distilleries, which is really cool. I mean, it's a, it's a good time to be a, a, a lover of spirits and, and beer and wine in, in Philadelphia. I just want to add one more thing. That was, that was good. I just want to add one more thing. Um, you know, it, none of us like when someone says, don't do that. And when – Prohibition went into effect, you know, people are judging your moral character. You know, look at what came out of that hypocrisy, really, that these same people were probably imbibing as well. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it was interesting. I, I really, really enjoyed doing this series. I did too, John. Mm-hmm. I'll drink to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Special thanks to John McDevitt and Paul Kurtz for teaching us about prohibition in Philly and the many ways people got around it. And make sure to check out their podcast, The Beer and Booze Bros. That's bros with a Z. KYW In-Depth is produced by Charlotte Reese. Our production coordinator is Ali Amato. Tom Rickert is the executive producer of KYW Original Podcasts. I'm Carol McKenzie. Make sure to subscribe to KYW In-Depth and help us get the word out by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again next week.